Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. I want to welcome you to Transformation Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. I want to invite you to take a deep breath because today we're talking about healing racial trauma. And I want to acknowledge that this is starting the 12th month that I know about the pandemic and the four eyes. Infection, January was the highest death rate in the US around the infection and the incredibly mismanaged pandemic, which has such a racist white supremacist impact. And then as others have talked about the other three eyes, January 6th insurrection with white supremacist domestic terrorism that we are still in the middle of figuring out. So insurrection, impeachment, and inauguration. So just breathe. In this context, in this national global moment, I could not be more excited and more needing to have here and welcome my colleague, Dr. Candace Nicole Hargens, the founding director of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma and an award-winning assistant professor of counseling psychology, University of Kentucky, where you help prepare others to do incredible healing work in the world and particularly within the Center for Healing Trauma, I'm assuming the work around ally and accomplice meditation for cultivating an anti-racist mindset. Love it. Black Lives Matter meditation for healing racial trauma. And your work has been, and there's probably even more featured Huffington Post, New York Times, Therapy for Black Girls, which I just loved. Good housekeeping, Flavity. I just... We're in for an incredible hour today as we really talk about what is racial trauma and specifically how can folks individually, collectively, and in organizations support deep healing from the incredibly increasing racial trauma. So welcome to the show, Dr. Candace. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's just great to be back with you again after the work we've done together. I just couldn't wait for an opportunity for us to get to chop it up one more time. Let's do it. So could you just start by letting folks know a bit about who you are, how you came to wanting to really have part of your life purpose, healing racial trauma, especially in this time of pandemic with you and yours and mm-hmm. racial You know what? I've been really thinking about how I introduce who I am and what brought me to this work. And the more I talk about it, the more I refine it, that I am the product of what the best of black women investing in someone and loving someone looks like. Mm. So I <laughs> I had, um, you know, I grew up with a, a single mom and grandmothers and aunties all around who just poured into me and invested the best they had 
at every step of my journey. And so I had, you know, all of this love around me, all of this privilege too, quite a bit of, quite a bit of privilege as it relates to, you know, being neurotypical, being straight, being slim bodied, being smart in the way white people assign value to intelligence but also marginalization, being black and being dark skinned with kinky hair and being woman and being working class. And all of that, you know, intersects to the moment where I thought, hmm, I want to go to a black college because I'm tired of white people. <laughs> Growing up in predominantly white neighborhoods. So I ended up going to Spelman, but that was the best educational experience of my life. It gave me the the language for what my experience had been. It taught me about Bell Hooks and Patricia Hill Collins. And those were the additional Black women who inadvertently poured into me and brought me to the work where I was like, you know, I want to be a psychologist. I knew that when I was 16. Mm. So I ended up taking the circuitous route, taught high school for a few years before I went back into it. And now I'm just living my dream and doing my dream career. So I'm doing faculty work, which means I'm primarily a researcher and a teacher, but also very much a healer with the Center for Healing Racial Trauma. So I not only do the practice of healing racial trauma, but I study it. And it's a joy for me. I, bring, bring, I like to bring joy into all of that work. Well, on your website, you also talk about liberation and love is just core of this. Mm -hmm. And as I hear you, I'm just reminded because of white supremacy classes and we could keep going, there are so many folk of color, indigenous folks that may not yet have access to the types of healing spaces that you create, support others developing their capacity to. So could you talk a bit about what is racial trauma? And as I was doing a little prep, proximate trauma was a mm. term I'd never heard. So you may not and then generational historical racial trauma, which I think most white people brush off and think, mm -hmm. can't y'all just suck it up? Come on, quit talking about race whining. Can't you get over it? We're less than a month from the insurrection and white supremacist domestic terrorism, storm in the Capitol, and so many voices saying, let's move on. I have that just uh, a representation of what might mm -hmm. happen at the individual level, so. Yeah, so racial trauma is what happens when the enduring, um, long-suffering experience of racism impacts your mind and your body, and often your relationships. So you'll find that people think, like you said, that it's just hurt feelings, but it goes well beyond the emotions that you experience when you're confronted with a racist stressor. It's also what happens to your body. And so in my research, I found that people's heart rates go up, they spike when they experience the racist stressor, and also, if you think about racial trauma as something that is pervasive and cumulative, then it's not just that one moment that you experience a microaggression or that one time you recognize a systemic oppression organizing your neighborhood, but it's how that compounds itself on, on top of each other until you are experiencing high blood pressure or you are experiencing high rates of maternal mortality or you are experiencing deep major depression or post-traumatic stress symptoms, all of these things that have their basis in health inequity are often a function of racial trauma for people of color. And I find so many white folks, especially the pull yourself up by the bootstraps, that one of many big lies of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. 
ideology of as the individual, you're the one that's the re responsible for your own health and it has nothing to do with environmental mm -hmm. racism, systemic racism. Um, I think any binary view where it's this or that, as opposed to a little bit of this, a little bit of that, some other little seasonings that we don't know about yet, because you know we just can't understand everything as humans. Anytime people get into binaries, they're committing to an idea to support their ego, as opposed to really committing to understanding that life is complex and humans are complex. So the things that impact us are going to be necessarily complex. So I don't even I don't even adopt a it's all systems approach or it's an all nature, like, you know, this is just you and what you need to do approach. It's just a little bit of all of that intersecting. We can't leave out how these systems organize neighborhoods, how they organize food, how they organize opportunities to exercise and get recreation. That's embedded in how this world shows up in the United States in particular. So when people leave that out, they're doing it because they're committed to a certain standpoint and their, and their commitment is pretty robust so <laughs> so could you talk a bit about whether it's proximate trauma or you're observing trauma because mm -hmm. there could be some folk of color indigenous folks that they personally may not have had some of the racial trauma but family members friends and then historical trauma mm -hmm. and i first when i was learning a bit about indigenous folks and the healing practices throughout the centuries this whole concept generational trauma was just blew my mind. So yeah, maybe if you share a bit. I think about the work of Joy DeGruy and Maisa Akbar mm -hmm. and people who, and um, I just lost his name, but the person who wrote My Grandmother's Hands. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> Menachem, Dr. Menachem. Yes. And so they talk about that generational and historical trauma. They do a really great job of it. But proximate trauma, I call it vicarious trauma. So they're just different names That's for the bad. same thing. But when you observe somebody else, and they don't even have to be somebody that is a loved one. So our um, psychology Bible, the DSM-5, says PTSD has to come as a function of like you observing someone that you love or like a cared for other or, you know, like a national disaster, like an environmental disaster. And I think there are a lot of people who are in the psychology field who are pushing back against that now because that vicarious trauma is real and we've got a lot of literature to support it. So if I can be a therapist and hear any number of stories related to how my clients experience trauma and feel the consequences of that in my own body, then you absolutely can be watching someone be murdered on television or on social media and feel the consequences of that in your body. So that vicarious trauma does have an impact. And it's when you observe someone else experiencing traumas that you might be prone to experience based on your shared identities. And then the historical piece is that even if you're not bearing witness to it, so in the moment or after the fact, but you learn about it and it's embedded in some of the norms that have shaped your culture because your cultural group has had to respond to recurring instances of trauma, that's that generational trauma. So that shows up in how we parent children. That shows up in how we socialize the people that we love. That shows up in how people's sleep patterns evolve. And it shows up in epigenetics, according to the research. So what DNA you pass on and how it responds to certain environmental triggers and stressors. 
So that generational trauma, we've seen it in people who have survived the Holocaust. We've seen it in people who have indigenous histories of genocide in this country, and certainly Black people who've experienced colonization and enslavement, and Latinx people who are now experiencing the outcomes of a terrible immigration system. They're, they're likely going to have that too. So that generational trauma is what happens when the, the impact of that doesn't just stay with the person or the group who experienced it, but is passed on genetically and psychologically to people who come after them. My guess is listeners might be feeling overwhelmed, deep fear, and can we do anything about it? And yes, could you talk a bit, I know this much about some of the ways that indigenous communities, and that could be native communities as well as African communities that were forming, trying to um, create some resistance to the enslavement of, so, and there might be others, you know, so what are, and might be worldwide, but what are some ways that actually might be the roots of what you do, ways that over the centuries, communities of color, indigenous communities have created some healing for racial trauma in the midst of just significant genocides and slavery, terrorism in all kinds of ways. I think a lot of the things that we identify as healing modalities now are indigenous, but the way we documented them or the way our documentation was erased as a function of colonization, I'm gonna turn a little bit and see if that changes. No, <laughs> the light is coming in, sorry. It's a metaphor. <laughs> so maybe it'll shift a little bit in a second. But when I think about talk therapy, so learning talk therapy as a psychologist in training, we hear about all of these people who come from European backgrounds who created these theories. But talk therapy been going on since humans been talking to each other. And so that's us, you know, <laughs> that's indigenous practice, but there are structures or names for it or ways of codifying it that white people have used and Europeans have used that have made it more likely to be randomized and controlled and studied. But that doesn't mean we haven't been doing it. But I also love to think about storytelling. So naming your experience and storytelling can show up in songs and in music. It can show up in, you know, roundtable healing circles where you're discussing what happened to you and people are bearing witness to it, nodding. It can show up in spiritual practices at churches with call and response. All of those are healing modalities. It can also show up in rituals. So some indigenous cultures and people create rituals for healing where how do you process who has died? How, what do you do when someone is grieving? So all of those processes are healing modalities that have been embedded in a number of cultures for years. And sometimes we co-opt them in American culture and then capitalize on them in American culture. But things like acupuncture and Reiki and yoga and dance and storytelling and poetry and talk therapy and music and all of that, they can be used to heal. I want to talk a bit about how even white listeners listening who are therapists, caregivers might still be saying that's fluff. And with the work that I do of talk therapy or CBT or whatever, I think I knew what that was. So that's the real work. And so how has whiteness, white supremacy culture co-opting 
and then just saying, this is the right way to do. And are you seeing some shifts in the systems of psychotherapy, group therapy, to really finally embrace the centuries of healing practices that today are so needed around racial healing trauma, healing racial trauma. Because my fear is, am I right, that most PhD therapists, social workers are white women. Is that still accurate and true? Mm -hmm. And insurance only pays for licensed type people. And so, healing practices that are really led by indigenous folks, other folks of color may not have the systemic support. So mm-hmm. any and all of that, um, cause eventually I want to hear more about what your practices are, but how do we develop, but we, we have time. We got mm-hmm. about five or six more minutes before we'll take a break. Okay. So yes, there are some people who have these markers of credibility. Like this is an evidence-based practice because it has had a randomized controlled trial to study in a double blind way that this one produces this type of outcome. But that's a built-in system of inequity because who has the funding to develop a randomized controlled trial that's distributed through organizations that are primarily white? Who has the resource to recruit and pay participants. So there are people who are doing healing to your point without insurance, like at the Center for Healing Racial Trauma, we don't take insurance, we use a sliding scale. And they are having to document their use of these evidence-based practices. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that my role in this, because I like to understand the systems and work within them while I'm dismantling them, is that one, I'm recruiting more people of color into the field. And I do that every single year as a faculty member at the University of Kentucky. Two, when I train psychologists, I let them know that CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is one way of many ways. You might integrate that into indigenous practices, things that kept you and healed you when you were a child that you knew intuitively that was going to be a healing practice for you. You might integrate those. You might invite clients to decide for themselves based on their lived experience, what has already been healing and how you can be in solidarity on that journey. So I don't throw out all of these practices that have had some research, but I recognize that the research enterprise is inequitable. And so I'm not going to only and exclusively use those to say this is credible or this is not. And anytime I work with scientists, I challenge them to do the same. Who did the majority of these studies? Who are the authors of these papers? Who runs the journals in which the papers are submitted? Who funds the studies in the, in the first place? And if you can answer those questions honestly, and people love to use the term objective, if you answer these terms, these questions objectively, then you'll see that there's a pattern of racism, even in the way we begin to study, even in the questions we ask and the methods we we structure or systematize. So we've got to be willing to push against that, to think about all of the ways that healing can show up. And one of the ways that I'm seeing it now in the science is that there are more people of color moving into these academic spaces and who are like, let me study meditation. Let me study yoga. Let me study music therapy. Let me study storytelling. And so there are small pilot studies coming up and even some bigger, larger randomized control trials coming up. So they're working within the system to at least document those practices as evidence-based. So it's a both and. So the power of using the tools of systemic, racist, white supremacist counseling systems, healing systems, 
and seeing some change as well as uh, your voice really challenging. Mm -hmm. I read how the American Psychological Association, yeah. APA, called racism a pandemic, the pandemic of racism. Mm -hmm. What I'm curious about in just a couple minutes is my hope is there are hundreds of thousands of more folks like you, particularly folks of color, indigenous folks moving into leadership to mm -hmm. shift these systems quickly. And as I've worked inside some organizations that are focused on counseling, the resistance to change in how we do the practice, much less who we hire. So I know we're not going there today, but can you give me any hope? About I can, I can definitely give you hope. Um, I am not, I want to acknowledge this really clearly. I am not speaking in this role for this podcast, but I'm on the board of directors for the American Psychological Association. So even though that's not the role I'm using and speaking from today, I know that when the membership voted for someone like me, overwhelmingly, when they said, we want your voice at the table as a leader in this field, that was a representation of us attempting to really rethink who leaders should be, who should be running the field of psychology. So I'm really grateful because there have been a number of black women in the president's seat in the past few years and black men in president-elect positions. The CEO is a black man who has a really robust vision for how psychology can grow and expand. So I have a lot of radical hope for that. Radical hope. And as y'all are listening, demographics, representation, leadership is critical. The next step is policies, practices, programs, services, development. As we just have a couple minutes left, could you let people know how they can find you? Because my guess is not only for the Center for Healing Racial Trauma, mm -hmm. but I'll bet there are a lot of folks that want to find you for consulting, training, speaking inside their organizations. Because y'all, I forgot to mention, Dr. Candace Nicole Hargens has a robust consulting training organizational liberation program. So how can people find you? So you can go to centerforhealingracialtrauma.com or drcandicenicole.com. So that's, I do, you know, healing racial trauma work and I do sex therapy work. So <laughs> both of those you'll find on drcandicenicole.com. But you can also follow me on Instagram at drcandicenicole and at Center for Healing Racial Trauma, where you'll see some of the work we do, some of our translation of the research we do. And you can reach out there if you're interested in receiving services or having us come in for trainings or consultation. So as we go to break, I'm here with Dr. Candace Nicole Hargens, Center for Healing Racial Trauma, Assistant Professor Psychology, Counseling Psychology, University of Kentucky. When we come back, I'd like to start with, so what are some of the racial healing practices you do that are in the center and we'll move to, and how can organizations really support, sponsor internal healing for Black, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and other folks of color. So when we come back, the Center for Transformation Change Radio, I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. We'll see you in a few minutes. Message delivery by Lisa Ann. You can't make this stuff up. Tune in every first and third Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Message delivery is an inspirational show about the journey to enlightenment and spirituality. For more information or your own personal message delivery, visit angelmessages2u.com. That's angelmessages, the number two, the letter u.com. 
Transition, simultaneously the most difficult and vital part of the human experience. Without change, how would we grow? Tune in to Grounding Into Your Radiance with Stacy Barber every second and fourth Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Step into your truth and allow the light into your life. For more information about Stacy and her services, visit StacyBarber.com. That's Stacy, S-T-A-C-I-E, Barber.com. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Steffen each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. Raising the vibrations through stimulating conversations while exploring the mysteries of Atlantis and Lemuria on Tales from the Mer World Radio with me, Amira Beth. Join us every second and fourth Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Be ready to feel empowered and an active part of the changing earth. For more information about me, visit Amerabeth.com. The Truth is Funny, Shift Happens with Colette Marie Steffen is excited to welcome Karen Benton as a monthly guest host. Tune in on the third Wednesday of each month at 8 a.m. Pacific time to regain confidence and trust in your capacity to create change in your life, your health, your family, and your well-being. Karen Benton is a mother, nurse practitioner, certified body talk practitioner, Franklin Method instructor, and owner of Limitless Living LLC. For more information about Karen, visit karenbenton.com. So welcome back to Transformation Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear having a fabulous conversation, learning with Dr. Candace Nicole Hargens from the Center for Racial Healing Racial Trauma. So as we come back, could you just talk about what are the ways that you and others support folks of color, indigenous folks to heal racial trauma? Mm-hmm. And especially what might people be able to do on their own if they're not able to find some resources in their community online. So So at the Center for Healing Racial Trauma, we have twofold work. One side is prevention, as we noted at the beginning, right before we went to break. That's the training we do to help organizations cultivate an anti-racist organizational culture. Because we recognize that if we don't do the prevention work, then you're going to keep being inner keep interfacing with racism no matter what but then on the intervention side we have our um therapy so we do individual therapies and then we also do healing workshops and the individual therapy does start with talk as the basis but it's what we do with the talk that really starts to shift the healing for people so you're going to get a lot of validation When we talk about racism in our sessions, when we talk about all of the things that intersect with racism, all of the other identities and oppressions, 
that intersect with racism, you don't have to explain 450 years of history to us. We don't need the extra lessons. And so that takes away all of the cognitive energy and backflips people have to do to say, hey, isn't this real how, how much pain I'm in? We just validate it. We just start with, you ain't crazy. So let's, go, let's get into that. That validation piece is so core because when people have to explain themselves or when they have to feel like they're not being respected and honored and their pain is being ignored, minimized or silenced, then it really helps them suppress the pain as opposed to processing it. So we start there. And then we give a lot of empathy. So even in the ways that people's trauma shows up in their lives and they have a lot of shame and guilt around maybe ways they've injured others or hurt others or can't perform in the way they would like to, we present a lot of empathy. And the empathy comes from a frame of this is how the system of white inferiority complex has organized your emotional space. So I see why you would show up like that. But if this is not a choice, an intentional choice you're making in how you show up, let's work on ways to start showing up in a way that feels more authentic for you, more healing for you, better for you. So we start with a lot of empathy. Like, I don't want to excuse any harm you've done, but I do want us to empathically understand it. And then we do some body work, some mind-body interventions, a lot of breath work and meditation. So taking deep breaths, I have clients do that all the time, or noticing how that pain feels in their body, how anxiety feels in their body, how when they walk into a room and they're the only person of color, do they breathe at all? You know, do they find that they get a headache after work? We start noticing those things and applying mindfulness practices to it with compassion a lot of compassion. So that's what the therapy piece can look like. But we also do in our healing workshops, we might do some dancing. We might throw a twerk session in there, shaking your body, moving, shaking off the stress. We might use coloring. So, you know, I have these handouts that I give out to clients sometimes, and they have different pieces of affirmations that are specific to people of color's experience and their mandalas around it. And so they can color it in just things that help you kind of process in artistic, creative ways. Sometimes I have clients write poems. These are things that are free that you can do. So journaling, we have a journal called, first of all, for black women. And it's for black women who are angry, understandably, but maybe they don't want to lose their jobs by acting on that anger. So they have a place to process it with humor, but also some real empathy. And we do journaling and meditation and dance and storytelling and poetry as ways that they can take when they're done with therapy. And so those are the things that I recommend to people who may not have a professional in their area or a healer in their area who wants to engage in this healing work or who has the capacity. You can do some of those things for yourself. And we know that healing resources are not equitably distributed. That means that under insurance happens more with people of color, um, no insurance happens more. And so we do it on a sliding scale based on income and we never turn people away for inability to pay because of your next question, the work that organizations do. So we charge organizations a nice amount of money because that subsidizes the therapy services we can provide to people of color, people of the global majority. So if I'm working with a large company or a university 
or an organization that's a nonprofit and they're predominantly white, I always let them know based on equity-based scales, I'm going to charge you at this amount and this is why. One, because the work is valuable that I'm going to do, but also because I want to make sure that if a person of color can get to our offices or do our telehealth, that no matter what their income level is, they are able to receive services. So organizations can really think through who they hire and how much they're willing to pay, how they organize their budgets so that they can pay for and support people of color who are doing this work. Because usually we have a community outreach component or a healing component that's also tied to it. Such great wisdom and examples and key things people can be doing in their own communities. I'm struck in this moment how you use terms so intentionally and you don't waste a moment as you're working with corporate leaders, even the term global majority and, and I'm charging you more. So that supports the unsupported critical healing organizational change work that the system, the white supremacist system does not yet support. Mm-hmm. Um, can you say a bit more about global majority? Because you can imagine if every white person, as well as every BIPOC person, just as they said, BIPOC or folk of color, the global majority, just that one small step, I can imagine some of the white listeners are kind of a little shook like. Mm-hmm. In, my, in my psychopathology class, I ask every year, what percentage of the world do you think are white people who, people who identify as white? And they're like, I don't know, 55 60, you know, they don't know because who we don't get taught that. And so then when I say 14%, they're like, wait, what? In the whole globe, 14% of the human beings identify as white or are white, would be categorized as white according to the systems we have in place right now. And so people of color really are the global majority. And I know depending on what community you live in, that might not look like that's the case, but then that's a function of colonization and systemic oppression. So if you ever grew up like I did in a predominantly white neighborhood, then that in and of itself on unceded indigenous lands is white inferiority complex organizing neighborhoods to create white spaces. And so we name, if that's the case, if only 14% of the world is white and the rest is people of color, Black people, Native American people, Asian people, all of these diasporas, then we really need to name it what it is, the global majority. And when we take that perspective, it has some empowerment in it to say, oh, I'm not alone in this. Like, I really am not a minority in any sense of the word, even if I might be the only one in this particular room. Taking a global perspective really brings home that these systems have been so pervasive and the branding on whiteness is impeccable. <laughs> it just makes it sound so great. But it's like, no, white people are human just like everybody else. They're a part of the human landscape like everyone else and don't make up the majority of it. So let's distribute the way we do things more equitably. And in the US, folks have heard for years that there's a shift in demographics that is real, especially in our younger folks coming up. And white folks my age may still be a majority in my age group, I think. But all that has been shifting. And so how do healers, counselors, folks that are doing training and development, folks that are holding spaces to support the success of high-performing teams, 
if we think about inside organizations, university colleges, mm -hmm. corporations, nonprofits, what's your, what would you wish that organizations did to support the healing of racial trauma, not as go to EAP only, mm -hmm. but as a system, because you know, I've been talking about white accountability groups yeah. and having organizations build them into leaders, open to anybody. So what would the parallel of that be for folks of color, indigenous folks? Um, what would you what would you imagine is possible? Yeah. What do you recommend? When I hear people of color, when I ask them this question, they say, I want to be able to show up at work as my full self. Mm. That doesn't even seem like a tall order, right? It shouldn't be. I want to be able to use my mother tongue at work mm -hmm. and, and still feel like people perceive me as credible and hardworking. I want to be able to wear my hair in all of the ways that my hair grows out of my scalp. There's just things that we really shouldn't even be discussing in 2021. That's what the workspace can start to embed in its policy and its orientation and its training. So when you and I did a talk together and you really brought into the conversation, is your policy anti-racist? I believe that shifting that policy, really taking an anti-racist lens to it, every single policy document and item needs to be in consultation with people of the global majority so that they think, well, how does this impact you? Because it's not just the policy as written or as implicitly indicated, but it's also how we interpret policy and act it out. So some of the work of Ibram Kendi, which I really like, um, stamped from the beginning and thinking about racism as a set of policies, I think that's a good starting place. But as a psychologist, I always add, it's not just what's written, it's how we interpret it and act it out. And that's behavioral. So the policies can really shift, that's step one. But then how do you introduce people to what these policies mean? And then how do you get people to practice engaging these new policies in new ways for them to let go of their desire to be comfortable and preserve white comfort and to open up the space for other people to be able to show up as their full selves. I think when people show up as their full selves, work wellness is more likely for everyone. And also productivity, if we're gonna still use capitalist metrics, is likely to go up. When people feel well, they do better work. So I love the systemic, what we need to be doing. When I recommend that folks of color work with leaders to say weekly, we want this space that's on work time that is either self-coordinated or we have resources. If you're investing in white leaders, white people across your organization to unlearn racist attitudes, behaviors, to deprogram, and to learn more effective ways to partner, follow leadership of folk of color and really dismantle racism is all you're saying. Then you need to invest in folk of color. Mm -hmm. And so how could people learn how to do some of that healing work or find community members that maybe have worked with you or other folks so that they're able to share honestly, find empowerment, um, as well as and push back if you don't like this idea. I think the systems have held folks of color without the capacity or skill development in the system to speak up about racist mm -hmm. microaggressions, to speak up in ways to dismantle white culture that's embedded in unhelpful ways. 
not that folks of color don't have the skills, but to in on work time to be able to share strategies and ideas and how do we thrive and speak up or get the white people doing the work. So I want every organization to have BIPOC space, not just employee resource groups, which often are used by organizations to let's help us recruit. I want healing spaces and organizations because we create the trauma in the systems and we perpetuate it every day. So push back, tell me what I'm not seeing. I think that those affinity groups and spaces are useful, but I agree with you that they're often people who have expertise in an area that is not healing. So if we're talking about a media company or an engineering company, they are likely to have affinity groups and they're engineers. <laughs> they are media executives. Healing is not their jam. And so if the companies would invest in bringing someone in to give the healing um, frameworks to these affinity groups, they can say, I know this is not your area, but here's something that you can do that might facilitate your wellness in this space that might help you think about how you want to challenge racism in this space or challenge all forms of oppression in this space. And if they paid for that, like the companies paid for that, if they supported the healing spaces as a part of the affinity groups, then people would be more likely to join them to participate and not feel overburdened by having to learn a totally new skill set that is unrelated to their professional identity so that they can do this at work. So building that in a lot of, like you said, a lot of companies have EAP. Do you have people of color who are the EAP staff? So I know we're expanding that here at the university. We brought in additional people because many of the faculty of color, staff of color are like, you know, we actually want to go to EAP, but we want people who look like us just so we don't have to explain all of this. So making sure that that's a part of, or you contract with outside groups in your area who will provide those services, but are paid through the EAP. Building that out as a company is really important. And this is a, an ideal year to do it because many companies have it at the top of mind. And we now have a presidential administration who has rolled back some of these really imposing constricting guidelines on what type of training companies should have. So now's a time where companies can make these investments and see the fruit of it in the next five years. To continue, President Biden, what was your impact? I just was like singing when he said, <laughs> every area of the government I'm expecting under Dr. Susan Rice's leadership to dismantle racism, white supremacy culture, he named it, white supremacy, systemic racism, everybody and everything we do. And that's the call I hear you doing for corporations, higher ed, nonprofits, mm -hmm. K-12, analyzing everything with a race lens dismantling, and especially in this moment, healing racial trauma and creating systems yeah. to minimize them, but also for folks who are experiencing racial trauma, healing in the systems. Yeah, because you can't do dismantling work without healing. You can, but it's not sustainable because people who are traumatized are gonna act like people who are traumatized, you know, like <laughs> and systems that are traumatizing can't just shift to systems that don't that no longer traumatize without some reconciliation that is accountable. It's not just, oh, let's get over it. We will no longer do that. But it's like, hmm, 
what type of apologies do we need to be making? How do we make amends? How do we show up? And money is usually valuable to these systems. So money has to be a part of the way that they do it. Whatever the system values, whatever the system uses as its metric, you need to build in anti-racism work and healing racial trauma work into those metrics. Including, as I know you're saying, what are the key competencies you will require of all new folks coming in around racial hearing, racial justice, creating anti-racist organizations, yes. how you develop the folks that you still have and how you hold them accountable to change their behavior and how long will you let someone continue to perpetuate traumatic racist dynamics? Mm -hmm. Those yes. are the key questions. When folks hear us right now and you and your work, what types of resistance can people, because my guess is folks are like, yeah, what kind of resistance can they expect either organizational, individually, either in their counseling centers, their healing practices, whites in organizations, maybe folk of color mm -hmm. that may not wanna call it healing racial trauma, what kind of resistance in these strategies in the last few minutes would you recommend? Yeah, the resistance that you described is real. People are afraid to call it what it is because they understand their systems and they feel like <laughs> their systems will not support it if it has a certain name. So we have gotten comfortable with using the word implicit bias as opposed to racism or anti-oppression work or systemic, you know, like we have gotten comfortable with certain certain language. And so you'll see that when companies roll out like RFPs or RFAs or things like that, they'll use the, that language because it feels more comfortable. So the resistance is around a people's comfort level and what they're afraid of. A lot of people are just simply afraid of change and it doesn't matter what the change is, they're terrified of change because they feel like they'll be left behind. They feel like they'll be perceived as incompetent. They feel like they'll be perceived as inadequate. Those things will likely be true. You will be incompetent for a while. Get over that. You will not know what you're doing. And so when companies start investing in trusting the process of under, trusting the process of moving through discomfort, which is necessary courageously as a function of this work, then I think that you can start to move beyond some of that resistance. So I always frame it like the three Fs. People have fear, which is the main one. People are afraid of any number of things from looking stupid to losing their friends, all of those. But there's also fatigue. Some people, especially people of color, have been doing this work for so long. They are just burnt out. Racial battle fatigue is real. Maybe you've been the only one champion, championing these efforts at your workplace for five years. You're tired, understandably so. And so how you build in your own healing work so that you're not out there on a limb by yourself and how these systems support you is really their responsibility to take that up. And then the last is not given a F. So some people don't care. They like the status quo. It serves them you know, and they benefit from it in so many ways that are clear to them and they do not want to give it up and they will actively resist it. And some people will passively exist it with active intentions, if that makes sense. So those are the three barriers that get in the way. But I think that organizations who are courageous and people within those organizations who do the work, who are courageous, will decide what they're willing to risk and start to take action at that level of risk. And maybe they'll see that that action has some weight to it and they'll 
up their level of risk a little bit along the way. So I understand that it can be and might necessarily be incremental for some people. And some people it'll be all encompassing. And so just navigating that, most organizations are still figuring it out. So what you're talking so powerfully about is what's in it for me, especially as white folks or in leadership or any white, why should I support racial he healing racial trauma organizationally? Why should I change my behavior so I'm not replicating, creating more racial trauma? Let's talk a bit about how whites, Menachem, Menachem, Dr. Menachem talks about in my grandmother's hands that whites actually also have trauma healing to do. And could you say more about that? Because I do believe we whites, when we perpetuate racism, when we see it and we don't speak up, when our practices really perpetuate white privilege and keeps us in power, fear of losing that, but we also know we're participating in damaging and creating harm for folks of color. So some new thinking I'm having. How could or do whites need to also heal so that we show up as true partners in dismantling racism? Yeah, white people need to go to therapy around that too. <laughs> and, and, we're, and work with therapists who are informed about how imposing and benefiting from privilege and oppressive symptoms can erode your capacity to empathize, your sense of humanity, and that will show up in your family system. Mm -hmm. So you might think you're not just saying something at work, but then you see someone in your family system hit or abuse your child and you don't say anything. You know, you start to really embody silencing as a way of being, as opposed to it just being in this one area. So I love, there's a Gwendolyn Brooks poem and I wish I knew the name of it, but she talks about how the husband and the family goes to a lynching or abuses or harms a black person and then he comes home and acts out on his wife too. And the family system has to keep both of those silent. And so there's a lot of destruction when you think about people who are in law enforcement having high rates of domestic violence I think that is probably, and I'd love to see the research on that tied to how you enact pain on other people outside and think that's going to escape your family system. It's not. So really using the therapy space with therapists who get it, who can really unpack these systemic, systemic impositions for you might help you grapple with, ooh, what am I giving up when I relinquish white entitlements, but also what am I receiving when I relinquish white entitlements? What parts of my humanity do I have access to again? How do I stop numbing myself to other people's pain? I think that can show up in therapy. Wow. A Bronzeville mother, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that in. And mm -hmm. that was Gwendolyn Brooks, you said? I think it was Gwendolyn Brooks, right? <sighs> My hope is so many listeners are asking in the work that they do, how can they infuse healing racial trauma, much less in their own life, but also bring these practices in. Can you share more as we come down to our final minutes, how people can find you, but also how the Center for Healing Racial Trauma supports the development of healers, caretakers, change agents, or how you're envisioning do it in an even broader, because 
I have this vision of national international center for developing healer. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that is, that is the vision. You know, you and I, we like to think big. <laughs> what I have to do is mitigate my big visionary brain with my little body capacity right now. <laughs> and so now I'm in the, this year I'm creating the systems, establishing the systems and structures so that when it's time to enact that vision, I've got the people on my team who are ready to support that vision and that growth. And I have relationships and communities so that I'm not doing it in isolation. That is what I see. But I do see the Center for Healing Racial Trauma becoming a national center with telehealth options in every single state where people of color receive healing racial trauma based therapy, but also we already nationally do the trainings. So we work with universities and organizations, nonprofits, companies, already healthcare facilities already teaching people how to cultivate an anti-racist mindset and develop an anti-racist culture. So we do that and we, and we love that work. It's beautiful, but the core of it, the reason we do it is to help racially and ethnically marginalized people, the global majority heal from racial trauma. We do it just because we understand that prevention is necessary. And the core of the work is how do we show up for people of color? How do we show up for the global majority? Mm. And not from a deficit model, I'm talking not about at all. but from because of systemic white supremacy, racism, it's diffused in everything and in us as white folks for sure. Mm -hmm. But also look at how we whites think deficit model, you don't have enough grit resilience yeah. instead of systemic dismantling of racism as the president Biden has called for. Any final thoughts, reflections? And I always leave with this. Point. So you can you can find me at drcandicenicole.com and at centerforhealingracialtrauma.com and also on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Candace Nicole and Center for Healing Racial Trauma. But also I leave with you came into this world a worthy, valuable human being. And you'll leave this world a worthy, valuable human being. I always leave people of color with that sentiment because so many lies embedded in these stereotypes tell you otherwise, that you have to earn value, that you have to earn worthiness. And that's inherent in your humanity. That's the reason you came to be. So if you operate out of that, I think that that's step one in the healing journey. And we'd love to be in solidarity with you on the rest of that journey. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.